listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. This is a last Sunday in our series on forgiveness before, before we move into Celebration Sunday. We celebrated this morning. We'll celebrate even more next Sunday. In this series on forgiveness, you've learned a lot, haven't you? Just real quick, I want to review some, some key truths. There's so much we could review this morning. With just rapid fire, here are five key truths that we have learned First, forgiveness is transformational, not transactional, because we pay forward the, the forgiveness that Jesus brought into our heart by the way that he forgave us. Two, forgiveness is relational, because we're always seeking forgiveness with those who have wronged us, but it's also releasing, because we're allowing God to do justice, remembering that we will never be asked to forgive more than we have been forgiven. Truth number three, sometimes forgiveness seems impossible, especially with repeat offenders. So we pray for God to give us strength and faith as he uproots mulberry trees and he moves mountains in the hearts of those who have wronged us and in our hearts as well. Truth number four, forgiveness is healing when we recognize that the one who hurt me cannot heal me but the one who can heal me is the one who died to save me on the cross. Truth number five, last week when Jared preached, forgiveness is based on how Jesus set us free from the decree that was against us. And now as a church, we can practice Jesus' love with each other because he who has forgiven much, what? Loves much. So, are you leaning in to all these principles, walking them out in some of the relational complications of your life? I was waiting for some yeses. <laughs> Is it hard to do that? Now I got some yeses. <laughs> The truth is, as you walk out these truths and begin to, to pray about how God might want them to, to look in your life in the context of particular relationships, you're going to keep bumping your head up against the same stubborn truth. And that stubborn truth is, this is hard. It's messy. Reconciliation, forgiveness, healing, it can be very messy, and in part because we're messy, anger comes back, unforgiveness comes back, bitterness comes back. We say things we wish we wouldn't have said, that person that we thought we'd forgiven. And then on the other side, uh, that, that other person still resents us, or maybe we just feel like we're walking on eggshells, or there's so much dysfunction in that place where we want to see change that we say, Lord, I can't even get out of the batter's box, much less get to first base. So what do you do with all this messiness? How do we walk out these truths on forgiveness when things are messy and hard? And I think that's where the story of Joseph can help us. So please turn to Genesis chapter 50. We'll be starting in verse 15, Genesis 50. 
starting in verse 15. And you might think, you know, I really know the Joseph story very well. I remember that Joseph's brothers did a lot of bad things to him because they were jealous because he had the coat of many colors. But then Joseph forgave them all and everything turned out really well. Not exactly so. So let's look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father, Jacob, was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, Jacob, Joseph's father, had come to Egypt with the brothers and their families and their kids and all their possessions 17 years ago. 17 years have gone by, and, and you would think that now things are good. The, the wrongs and the lies and the manipulation, it's behind us. And, and we're finally living out the dream, the dream of enjoying life together in the land of Goshen under God's blessing. But apparently not, because verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. This is a lie. This is manipulation. The brothers, they're using their deceased father and even God for relational leverage. We have no record that Jacob ever told Joseph he needed to forgive, and if he had, he would have told Joseph, not his brothers. And so what we see in, in verse 16 is that Fear and manipulation and dysfunction are still in the hearts of the brothers. Verse 17. You know, I wonder if the brothers had even asked God for the forgiveness they needed even more than Joseph's. Verse 17, Joseph wept. He wept when they spoke to him. He weeps. It seems like Nothing has changed. All this effort to find forgiveness and reconciliation, and, and where is it? The brothers are still using the same lies and manipulation that they used before to get what they wanted, but now it's from a position of submission because they no longer have power, and Joseph weeps. Have you ever wanted to weep? Have you ever wept? All the love you gave, the effort you made to seek forgiveness and reconciliation, how you gave of yourself and the relational needle just isn't moving. And, and maybe you're weeping this morning. Walking out forgiveness with those who have wronged us will often bring weeping. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him, and they said, Behold, Joseph, we are your servants. In other words, don't kill us. Just treat us like servants. We'll get some kind of a closure on this thing, and everybody can just move on with their life. That would make me want to weep. The brothers don't even seem to want anything better with Joseph than this second-class relationship. So here's the question for us this morning. What do we do? to walk out forgiveness and reconciliation when it is really messy. 
What does God expect of us when that relational needle on forgiveness and reconciliation really isn't moving? So I think we learned two principles from the life of Joseph. Two principles we're gonna see for walking out these principles we've learned in the context of specific relationships. Number one, principle number one, the anchor for forgiveness is trusting God's sovereign goodness fully. The anchor is to trust God's sovereign goodness fully, even in the mess. I'm not talking about just trusting God's sovereignty generally. I'm talking about trusting God's sovereign goodness in your life. So why do we need an anchor? We do forgive because God has forgiven us in Christ that, that debt of 10,000 talents that we could not pay in our, in our heart rejoices in that and we, and we want to forgive but there's a question that we have and the question is is my future going to be good is, is there goodness in my future in this present mess and we ask because sometimes somebody's past wrong seems to have ripped goodness out of our life or sometimes somebody's present wrongs just seem to, to mar or to min, diminish or make impossible the goodness that I'm hoping for. So we need an anchor. And one of the key elements in this story that you may not have noticed is that both Joseph and his brothers were wronged. Yeah, Joseph's brothers wronged him, but he wasn't the only one wronged. Joseph's brothers were wronged by one of the deepest wounds that anybody can suffer, and that's the favoritism of Jacob, the pain, the pain of knowing that dad doesn't love me as much as he loves Joseph. Let's jump back in the story to Genesis 37. It'll be up on the screen for you, I think. There we go. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Can you, can you feel the pain of the brothers? Maybe somebody here knows the pain of what it is to be the less loved one or the unloved son or daughter. And Joseph's family is just a mess. It is a mess of rivalry and infighting and people vying for power and for dad's favor. And so here is his family tree, as it were. So uh, Rachel and Leah are Jacob's wives, they are sisters. That's always a bad idea. Um, Leah has six kids, and then we have Zilpah and Bilhah, who are sort of surrogate, surrogate moms. And there's the names of all the kids there. I'm not going to go into that, except to say that there were four moms and 12 sons. This is going to be a train wreck, isn't it? Yeah, it is a train wreck. So Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. And Leah is jealous of Rachel's physical beauty, and, and Rachel is jealous of Bilhah's ability to have six kids, and Zilpah and Bilhah get co-opted into a baby war. There's a baby war in Genesis 30, 
And they are sexually abused and dishonored, being co-opted in that. And, and, and Reuben is the firstborn, but dad Jacob doesn't seem to like him much. And Reuben and Simeon, Levi, and Judah, they're the, they're the big four brothers. They're running the show. They're running the family business. They're out there making money, putting sweat equity into the family business, and they are not about to let, let little Joey run around in his, in his colored coat. It would be like, you know, he got the red Corvette convertible from his, on his 16th birthday from dad. No, th this is not happening. He is not going to rule over us. Now, I, don't, I don't care about those dreams where uh, our, our sheaves of wheat bowed down to his sheep of wheat in the field. And I don't care about the dream where the, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to, to Joseph. No, it is not happening. He, he's not getting everything we work for. Well, they've been wronged, but they do wrong to get right. That doesn't work. But chapter 37, verse 19, how do you get rid of the, how do you become a more loved son? Get rid of the better loved son, so the brothers think. It says, here comes this dreamer. So Joseph is going out to his brothers in the field. Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. And you guys know the story well. So his brothers throw him into the pit, even as he begs for mercy. A caravan of Midianites comes along, and they sell Joseph. Instead of killing him, they sell him to the Midianites for 20 pieces of silver. Now, please notice here. The difference between Joseph and his brothers is not that Joseph was wronged and his brothers weren't. They were both wronged. The difference is, is that Jacob, of Joseph, is going to learn how to trust fully God's sovereign goodness in his life, and the brothers won't. The brothers will trust in their own strength and even their own wrong to get what they want. So how do you and how do I learn to trust in God's sovereign goodness? We learn to trust in God's sovereign goodness when it seems like every other goodness in our life has gone AWOL. Because that's Joseph's story. He's sold into slavery. He's 17. He's a high school junior. And what I love about Joseph is how he grows in, in his trust in God's sovereign goodness over his life, even in the midst of so much evil that comes. So Joseph is thrown to the pit. God sees him. God changes the brothers' minds so that they sell him instead of killing him. God sends Joseph to Egypt. When Joseph is abandoned as a 17-year-old in a foreign country, God stands at Joseph's side. Genesis 39.2 says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became successful in Potiphar's household. When Potiphar's wife makes sexual advances to Joseph, God strengthens Joseph's purity, and Joseph says to her, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? When Joseph is wrongfully accused and thrown into prison, God is in prison with him and gives him favor 
In chapter 39, verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. When Joseph interprets the cupbearer's dream correctly, but then the cupbearer forgets about him for two years, God does not forget about Joseph. God remembers Joseph and prepares the moment for him. And again, you know the story about how Pharaoh has this crazy dream where the seven skinny cows eat the seven fat cows and the seven blighted ears of corn devour the seven uh, good ears of, of corn. And the cupbearer remembers, you know, now might be a good time to, to, to tell Pharaoh about this guy I met in prison that knows how to interpret dreams. Maybe I'll get some brownie points here, some sphinx points or whatever they had there. So the moment comes and Joseph is brought in and here's what Genesis 41:15 says. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph doesn't say, yeah, that's part of my resume. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. God will do it. God will do it with the same sovereign goodness he's been pouring into my life for the last 13 years. Joseph interprets the dream. He's, he presents his plan, survival grain plan, and then Pharaoh says to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? In a recent book called God Shines Forth, the author's Say, the God you know is the God you show. That's what's happening here. That's your life, too, and my life. The God we know is the God we show. When you're thrown into a pit, or you're wrongfully accused, or you end up in jail, or you do good for somebody, and then that somebody forgets about you, we learn to trust in God's sovereign goodness when it seems like every other goodness has been ripped out of our life. And for Joseph, he had specific faces and, and names, but sometimes, and maybe you're one of these people, sometimes we might say, you know, for me it was just a kind of a combination of people and events and, and forces and decisions, and, and it just kind of happened, and I don't know how I could ever find God's goodness in this. We all recognize this photo, don't we? The girl in this picture has a name. Her name is Kim Fook, and she has a story. Maybe some of you know her story. You've seen the documentary about her. She's written a book called Fire Road, The Napalm's Girl Through the Horrors of War to Faith, Forgiveness, and Peace. So that's a little girl that would seem to have utterly no hope of God's sovereign goodness. In fact, some people might say, well, that just shows there's no God. Not so. Kim survived her napalm burns. They still cause her a lot of pain today. Her back is just a mass of scarred tissue. I decided not to put that image up this morning. She was a happy nine-year-old girl when her back was so badly burned. She was from a well-off family. This family was from the cow dye religion. It's sort of a Baha'i universalist religion. 
Kim said, we were equal opportunity worshipers. Every God got his chance. And she says in her story that the worst pain she suffered was not the, the burns on her back, but it was the desperation in her soul. It was that voice in her head that said, Kim, you are unlovable. You will never be loved. These scars are your curse. You will never be married. You will never be happy. And in her rage, she went to the central library in Saigon. She began to rip books off the, off the shelves, and there fell into her hands the New Testament. And as she began to read it, she couldn't put it down. Because what drew Kim's attention to the New Testament was this Jesus. This Jesus who had suffered so much, even more than her. This Jesus who loved her, gave himself for her, wanted to give her his peace. And on the day that Kim put her faith in Jesus, she said this, Oh, how desperately I long for peace how ready I was for love and joy. I wanted forgiveness for my transgressions. I wanted to let go of my pain and find goodness. I wanted this Jesus. We'll come back to Kim's story in, in just a moment, but if you are weeping this morning like Joseph or if you are scarred like Kim, can you, would you trust God's sovereign goodness and the promise of his sovereign goodness in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8:31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, indeed interceding for you for me, who who can separate us? What can separate us from the love of Christ? So if God's for us, why don't we trust more fully in God's sovereign goodness? I think there's two reasons, two obstacles. Obstacle number one is this. We trust more in the goodness of our dreams than we trust in the goodness of God. You have dreams, I have dreams, Kim had dreams, Joseph had dreams. We want a loving marriage, a beautiful family, successful career, financial security, all, all good. But sometimes we let the, the goodness of those dreams overshadow the goodness of God. We trust more in our dreams than we do in him. And even Joseph, when his dreams were finally fulfilled, they were not for his exaltation, but rather for God's, the exaltation of God's goodness flowing through Joseph. Obstacle number two. We expect to find more goodness, from the, more goodness from the love of others than from the love of God. You know, what, what produces so much anger and, and, and hatred in Joseph's brother, this favoritism, Jacob failed him. He failed his sons. And they think, well, if we can just get rid of Joseph, we will have that, that love from our father. And they get rid of Joseph, and they don't get the love of Jacob. Jacob just keeps mourning for Joseph. Dear church, at certain times in your life, God in his severe goodness will take goodness or let goodness go out of your life in order that you might see that goodness cannot be found in the fulfillment of your dreams. His goodness cannot be found in the love of other people. It will be found in the perfect and beautiful love of Jesus Christ. 
And I love the way that Michael Reeves says it in his book, Rejoicing in Christ. He says, For through the gospel, the Spirit has opened our eyes to see not merely that Christ is true, but that Christ is glorious. He is precious, desirable, captivating, satisfying, delightful. Joy always comes through encountering beauty, and in Christ is found the highest beauty. Principle number one, the anchor for forgiveness is trusting in the sovereign goodness of God fully. Principle number two, the fruit of forgiveness is sharing, is sharing the goodness of God freely. That's the fruit of forgiveness, sharing that goodness of God with others. The fruit of forgiveness is not feeling good about myself, it's not getting closure, although getting closure is a good thing. Joseph's brothers say to him, behold, we are your slaves, that's verse 18, now verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God that I would know what to do here? Am I in the place of God that I could somehow make this mess work? The interesting thing here is in terms of political power, Joseph almost is in the place of God because if Joseph gives the orders, the soldiers will come and he will say, I'm tired of my brothers, I'm tired of all their failures, just get them out of here, kill them, I don't care. Joseph says, am I in the place of God? Am I, am I good enough to judge you, punish you, condemn you, kill you? When we put ourselves in the place of God, we will undo the good that only God can do. Joseph's testimony is, I am not in the place of God. Good thing. God is in his sovereign place, and my God, here's my testimony, my God is good, and my God does good, and so I will do good even in the face of evil. The God you know is the God you show. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Sometimes people do evil against you because they meant evil against you. That's what happened with Joseph's brothers. Verse 15 says it was evil that they did. In verse 17, it says twice it was transgression. It says it was sin, it was evil, it was inexcusable, it was wicked, it was wrong. And maybe you've been harmed by somebody who meant evil. Sometimes maybe you have been harmed by someone who did not mean evil, but they just didn't do well. That's the case of my own father. He didn't mean evil by his addiction to alcohol, but it hurt our family. It resulted in my parents, my parents, our mom and dad's divorce. Or maybe somebody didn't really intend anything at all. Kim even says in her story, I wasn't being targeted. I was just in the wrong place when the napalm was dropped. Jenny and I were talking about verse 20, and she pointed out to me something I hadn't seen before. She said, no matter what the actors meant, there is somebody who always means evil against you, and that person is Satan. He always means it for evil. Always. The evil of destroying your trust in God's goodness. Or maybe the, the evil of not sharing God's goodness with others. 
His evil, his evil always, always, always diminishes the good of God in this world. But here in Genesis 50, Joseph not only trusts in God's sovereign goodness, he shares it with his brothers. And Joseph gets it. He really does. He gets it. And he sees, here's the opportunity to finally deal with this wound of favoritism because now the favored one can be the serving one. The favored one can be the giving one. As he gives goodness to his brother. Verse 20 says, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people, and a better translation would actually be that many peoples should be kept alive as they are today because everybody, not only Joseph's family, but also the Egyptians and also the nations that are coming to Egypt to buy grain, they're all being kept alive by God's goodness flowing through Joseph. That's the fruit of forgiveness. And Joseph says to his brothers in verse 21, so do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Don't worry, guys. Your kids, have, your kids have got a future. It's going to be good for your kids. I'll see to it. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Generous provision, protection, words of comfort and kindness. This is the goodness of God. This is the fruit of forgiveness flowing through Joseph. And, and you know what I would like to know? I really would. I'd like to know how this story turned out. Did after this, did all the brothers um, have a good relationship with, with, with Joseph? Was there some brothers that were still kind of relationally distant or cool? I mean, how did this, how did this story turn out? But you know, maybe it's, maybe it's better that we, we don't know because Joseph is not sharing God's goodness to get a happy ending. Joseph is sharing God's goodness because God is good and God does good even in the mess. I want to look again at Kim's story for just a moment because she became a follower of Jesus Christ. She did get married. She did have children. She became an international ambassador of peace, uh, literally known throughout the world for her story. But was that just a, a happy ending? No. Her pain was constant. And she says this about her own struggle. She says, for too long I carried around a black sludge, a black sludge of resentment in my soul, and I let it slosh up the sides of my inner world and splash it on innocent passers-by. Anybody here identify with that black sludge? that even comes up out of us and splashes on somebody else. And the only way for Kim to get rid of that black sludge was to pray for those who hurt her, and she began to do that, following Jesus' words that we pray for those who have wronged us. And she says as she prayed day by day, day after day for those who had hurt her, she says, I was being filled up with something good, with peace and understanding and compassion and love. I was no longer saying that I just wanted to be more like Jesus by his power. I was becoming more like Jesus. The greatest goodness of God 
that you or I can ever share with somebody else is the goodness of Jesus flowing out of us. You, you're not going to be prime minister of Egypt. You're probably not going to have a public platform like Kim. But every day you have an opportunity to let the goodness of Jesus flow out of you into whatever mess. Jesus is good. And out of you can flow his goodness, his, his loving, his sharing, speaking kindly, comforting, serving. And all of it, you're not demanding with that. You're not demanding that my story had the ending I want. You're just showing forth the unstoppable goodness of God. Bishop Desmond Tutu uh, led the nation of South Africa through a time of repentance and confession of all the sin and wickedness of apartheid. And he said this. He said, without forgiveness, there is no future. Without forgiveness, there's no future. And even beyond this immediate messiness in, in, in Genesis 50, uh, I, love, I love Joseph. He, he says, it ain't over till God says it's over. So he does something utterly amazing, at least utterly amazing to me in verse 24. He says, I am about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel, possibly these are the sons of his brothers, he made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. He's saying, no matter what happens here, God's going to redeem this. God's going to redeem it. He always remembers to redeem because he's promised, he's going to fulfill his promise that in you, all the families of the world, the nations, will be blessed. He's going to do it, and when he does, I want you to take my bones with you because we're going to get redeemed together. Joseph's got some issues. He, he, he plays some didn't do forgiveness perfectly. At times, he had some cat and mouse games with his brothers before he re revealed himself. But what I love about Joseph is that he is a relentless truster in the redeeming goodness of God. Relentless truster in the redeeming goodness of God. And for that reason, he is considered to be a type of Jesus. Some of you may have heard that phrase before. He's a, he's a picture of Christ's redemption. The rejected one... Joseph and Jesus, the rejected one becomes the chosen one. The chosen one who suffers. And as a result of his suffering, pours out the goodness of God into empty, sinful hearts that don't deserve it. And right here in Joseph's words to his brothers, I, I, I see a foretaste of Christ's goodness to you and to me. Do not fear. Draw near. Draw near. I'll provide everything you need. I'll care for you, comfort you. I'll show you the greatness of my, of my kindness. Please hear me this morning on this. I don't know what kind of wrong you may have suffered or how deep it goes, but Jesus knows how to redeem wrongs. He remembers to redeem. I think Jesus himself would say, I know how to redeem that wrong, no matter what it is. I know 
how to use for good what somebody meant for evil. I know, and if you don't believe me, if you don't believe me, just look at the cross and then look at it again and remember that the greatest evil that man ever meant was turned into the redemption, into the greatest gift that God ever gave. My dear ones, there is no, there is nothing. Nothing as good as the goodness of God. There is no goodness better than the goodness of God. So this is our last message on forgiveness, and I just want to take a moment to close it uh, with a story. I'd like to encourage you to respond to however, how, however God might be leading in your life, however he might be stirring your soul. A couple of years ago, I got a letter from a woman. She was in her 40s. Uh, she had not spoken to her father for years. No contact at all for years. And she was a course, she was, I'm sorry, a student in a course I was teaching on uh, resolution of conflicts, and I had finished that course by sharing with the students my own failure, my failure to forgive my dad for his addiction to alcohol until it was too late. And so she wrote me a letter, and she said, God is prompting me, he's wanting me to take the initiative with my dad, and she shared with me some lines from the letter that she wrote to her dad she said this, Dear Dad, the pride in my heart has robbed me of much valuable time with you. I ask you to forgive me for letting my pride speak more strongly than my love for you. I only ask that you allow me to open my life to you and to renew our relationship as father and daughter. I love you and I miss you. And God used that letter to touch the heart of her dad. He opened doors, there was joy, reconciliation, salvation. Her dad wanted to know, he wanted to know, what on earth motivated my daughter to write this? Yeah, we know. We know. So if God has been speaking to you in this series, do what he says. <laughs> Trust him. Share something. Write a letter. Make a call. Go. Do whatever, whatever it is, but don't wait. Don't wait more. Don't wait till it's too late like I did. Let today be the day. Yeah. When you show forth the redeeming goodness of Jesus Christ, the Savior you know will be the Savior you show. Let's pray. Father, sometimes your truth is so powerful because you are so good and we feel so small and weak, and we are. I am. I confess the depth of my need. But you take us up in your arms and you say, here's how we'll do it. I will give you strength by my Holy Spirit and the goodness of Jesus will flow out of you. So I pray for our church that we would be that church, that we would do good because you are good and you do good. Lead us forward by your spirit. Thank you for your word to us this morning and Joseph's story. Where would we be, where would we be, where would we be if you did not speak to us?